It's liquid gold where we do shots. Shots. All right, the summer of shots is back, and we are back here on Liquid Gold, right here on the We Own This Town podcast, weownthistown.net. I'm your host, Mike Wolf, today, doing a solo pod today to start off the summer of shots. And just a reminder, shots episodes are where we take one topic, one drink, maybe an idea, maybe we did lemonade last summer. We like to do it during the summer and talk about summery drinks, give you a little insight, give you a recipe, tell you maybe where the cocktail came from. As we go through the archives, we're running out of ideas. (laughs) We're running out of shots to do. But, uh, you know, you look hard enough, you always find one. Today, we're talking about one of my favorite daiquiri variations and one of my favorite drinks in general, the Hotel Nacional. It is named after a place I spent a lot of time at when I was in Cuba. I was not staying at the hotel, but it was where I got my internet access. This was 2010. And... uh, Obama was president. There was a lot of hope in the air. I look around now and things are very different. We're going to get into that. I'm flying solo today here on Liquid Gold. Check us out on the new website, liquidgold.show. And we've been kind of off and on during this spring and early summer this year as we've wrapped up uh, work on the new book, Cheer, the Liquid Gold Holiday Drinking Guide, which will be coming out in November. So more info to come on that. And we'll be getting Jess Backus back in for her cocktail correspondent role this summer, talking about some shots with her. But the Hotel Nacional today, it's a special one. So as I mentioned, one of the best daiquiri variations, and you could do a daiquiri variation similar to this by replacing the liqueur and replacing the um, the pineapple juice. But basically, this provides a great template for doing your own daiquiri variation as well. But to make this cocktail, we'll go ahead and give the recipe on the front end here because I know you're going to want to drink one after all we talk about today. But uh, you basically want two ounces of a gold rum. Now you can use white rum, something light. I wouldn't go super heavy or aged on this one. So you could go Puerto Rican. Ron Barilito is always a good one. You could go with El Dorado. You could go with something Dominican, the Cuban, the good Cuban rum. It's hard to find, but if you've got some Havana Club, the Cuban Havana Club lying around the house, this is what you want to make with it. So two ounces of rum, three-quarter ounce of lime juice. Then we're going to say an ounce to an ounce and a half of pineapple juice. How much do you love pineapple juice? Typically, when you're using fresh pineapple juice and you do want fresh, use the canned if you absolutely have to. And you're like, look, this is the only way I'm going to make this drink is with the canned. Go ahead. But... I highly advise you to juice a little bit of pineapple. It goes a long way. Pineapple juice in a drink, you know, you can almost use as much as two ounces. In this one, I would stick with an ounce. And if, you, uh, if you're if you experimenting, go up to an ounce and a half, see what that does. That's going to definitely make it uh, a little less strong and maybe take up the sweetness just a touch. So there's our pineapple juice, right around an ounce. Then apricot liqueur. And um, this is a lot of people love apricot from what I've found. So um, my favorite one to use for this is the Orchard Apricot from Rothman and Winter. I love those because it has a little bit of acid to it. It works really well with citrus and it's just dynamite. Um, For cheaper version, the Marie Broussard, if you can find that around, you might find that on the, uh, the basement bargain, bargain basement deal shelf 
where I remember one time I found a bottle for $4. I was like, oh, that's not bad. Um, so that's really your four ingredients. You got the gold rum, the pineapple juice, the fresh lime juice, the Rothman Winter apricot liqueur. I don't think you, you're not going to really need any simple or uh, demerara syrup in there. I don't think you're going to need it. Plenty of richness in this drink. And then you, you shake all those ingredients in a shaker and um, serve that up in a coupe. Double strain it. Get all those little ice shards out so it's nice and luscious and delicious. This is the ultimate tropical summer drink. You can garnish this with a like a pineapple wedge or half of a pineapple that you kind of curl into the coop. That's a beautiful way to do it. And I do have to throw a shout out here to Pearl Diver here in Nashville. They had it on their menu when they first opened. And uh, I remember going in there and trying some of the drinks, and that was probably the best drink I had there, the Hotel Nacional. And I know Jamie and those guys have spent some time at the hotel as well. If I remember right, we talked about it on a night that is most of most of it is lost to memory. But uh, <laughs> that's the cocktail. It's beautiful. It's perfect. Now, if you wanted to mess around with your own uh, variation, say you wanted to do a Tennessee version, name it after the fucking Hermitage Hotel. And uh, you could do um, two ounces of rum, and then for the apricot, you could sub in a honeysuckle, uh, an elderflower. Say you wanted to sub a little elderflower liqueur in there. And then for the pineapple juice, you wanted to sub watermelon. So you would have a rum, watermelon, elderflower, and lime juice cocktail. There's your variation. But the it's, it's a beautiful template for a variation on a daiquiri because you can replace the apricot liqueur and the pineapple juice, which are the key components of this drink really give it that fruity flavor without being artificial or uh, cloying. Because a lot of people say, like, I don't like anything fruity. And it's like, really? That's because you've probably had a lot of bad drinks at a lot of uh, Daytona Beach, beachside bars. Another cocktail that references the history of Cuba, it's kind of depressing to go along with these depressing times, the Remember the Main. Remember the Main refers to really the moment that led to the Spanish-American War and uh, also played into the Cuban Revolution of 1933, not the one we know more about uh, that happened in the late 50s. There was a uh, battleship right at uh, Havana Harbor going back to 1898. This was a press slogan that was developed, Remember the Maine to Hell with Spain, which blamed Spain for the unexplained sinking of the USS Maine off of Cuba in the Havana Harbor there in 1898. This is what provoked the 1898 Spanish-American War where America came in and said, Cuba, we are your friends and we're going to help you. Even though this sinking of this ship in Havana Harbor, 1898, has, is, is used often as one of the prime examples of what could be, and many believe to be, a false flag. And... It only took, so the, uh, the explosion happened in mid-February of 1898. By April 25th of 1898, Congress formally declared war on Spain. And by the end of the summer, Spain had ceded Cuba, along with the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam to the United States. So it was kind of a big one. 
1976, Admiral Hyman Rickover of the U.S. Navy mounted yet another investigation into the cause of the main disaster. His team of experts found that the ship's demise was self-inflicted, likely the result of a coal bunker fire. There are those who, who still maintain that an external blast was to blame. And uh, as they note in this Smithsonian Magazine article about this whole story, people are not uh, forgetting the main. So if a, an investigation in 1976 found that the ship's demise was self-inflicted, this, uh, this killed 266 of the 350 men on board. That would be kind of incredible um, if you consider what it led to which was um, the United States really sinking their claws into Cuba. This is a bonus. I guess this is a bonus cocktail for shots today. Remember the main, which is more of a, uh, I'd say this is more of an autumnal drink, more of a fall drink, but it's a uh, basically a blood and sand meets Manhattan meets Sazerac. So I'm sure that sounds pretty good. If you like cocktails, you could do like a bar spoon of absinthe. Uh, an ounce and a half of rye whiskey, say three-quarter ounce of sweet vermouth, and then I would just do a bar spoon, maybe a quarter ounce of cherry hearing, cherry brandy liqueur. Remember the main. Pretty cool drink. Crazy story. Was it self-inflicted? Was it just uh, drummed up as a reason to go to war, a war that had a lot of consequences, both for Spain, obviously, but also uh, filled up the coffers of the United States? Back to the Hotel Nacional. And the reason I mentioned the Remember the Main is because when you're standing in the back area overlooking the Malacan, which is the boulevard that hugs the ocean there in Havana, it's a beautiful road that stretches all along the harbor. And as you're standing at the top of the back, I don't know what I would call it. It's basically a small cliff where the Hotel Nacional sits on it. And it's above, right above the Malacan. You're looking down on it. You're looking down on the ocean, down on the harbor. And you can see where this explosion would have happened. The remember the main explosion of 1898 that really led to the, what would happen in the entire next century in Havana. So I was thinking about these things as I was um, spending time in that back area where, if I remember right, I'm pretty sure there's a pool. I do remember that there were... Um, Several bars around that back area, one of which I'll never forget what I saw and what I drank. It was really just a small little shack sort of uh, bar that was set off to the side. It wasn't open all the time. It was open at night. And there was a gentleman in there who was fresh pressing sugarcane juice for cocktails. So it was a beautiful thing. It took up a lot of space, but this person is pressing sugarcane juice mixing it into your cocktail. He was doing grapefruit juice, lime juice, rum. Can you imagine how incredible that was? So I came back to Denver. I was out there working on a few different stories, writing some things about the island and oddly enough, golf. That was really my ticket over there. But I came back to Denver and tried to recreate a cocktail and named it the Malacan and had some really interesting conversations with people as I sat out there overlooking the harbor and young Cubans, teenagers. There was one kid I talked to, he was about 16, and he came over to sell me a CD, and uh, he was a musician, was talking about, oh, you're from America? Oh my God, I, I can't wait to get to America. And uh, he spoke English beautifully and sat down next to me, and I was like, sure, I'll buy this CD. So I gave him 
for the CD. And uh, we sat and talked for a while and he looked out and I'll just never, I'll never forget the look in this kid's eyes as he looked out into the ocean and he had braces and his hope really had been diminished. And he would, he said to me, you know, I can't wait to get to America. And I said, oh, wow. Uh, why do you want to go to America? And he said, there's nothing here for me anymore. Uh, there is nothing here for me in Cuba. Nothing for me to do. There's no money. And he was distraught. Now, another conversation uh, after I returned home that night to the flat that I was staying in, I had my Cuban papa and my Cuban mama. And they were taking good care of me, feeding me, and, you know, feeding me some beautiful home-cooked meals. And then I'd sit back and drink some Havana Club three-year with my papa. He would call me the white Obama because of how much I loved Cuba and Cubans. And um, I'll say most of the people I interacted on this trip were some of the most amazing people I've ever met traveling. Some of the just most friendly, vibrant, beautiful people. So when I got back that night, we're sitting back and we're drinking rum and I'm talking to him and I'm telling him about this kid who I saw that I bought the CD from and he shakes his head, don't be buying CDs, don't be buying cigars from these kids. But I told him how this kid, it seemed like his hope was lost and I asked him and I had been talking to him, asking him what his feelings were on the revolution. What, how do you feel like the revolution has panned out? at this point. And he never really wanted to talk about it. But after, you know, three or four glasses of rum, he would open up quite a bit. And he did talk to me about um, what he felt was good about the revolution, what he felt was bad about the revolution. Fidel Castro and, uh, gosh, 11 other of his comrades that survived their initial incursion with the grandma yacht. Uh, that sailed into Cuba, where they lost, gosh, they lost um, something like 65 people from that initial voyage. But the 12 who survived, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, among them, they went on to to win and uh, and take over the country. It's a pretty amazing story. If you want to read more about that story, check out John Lee Anderson's book on Che Guevara. It's really thorough and uh his stuff on the revolution, how that went down is, is really amazing in that book. But so I'm talking to my Cuban papa about this and he tells me, you know, the one thing that the revolution did that I'll always be thankful for, he said, was what it did for our children and what it did for the children of Cuba who have a great education and who are taken care of in this country. We take care of our children. And he was very proud of that. And he said, uh, to my point about this teenager that we were talking about who had such kind of an impact on me because I really saw his eyes and I really wondered, you know, like, Hey, I'm not, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if it's going to be that much better for you in America, but, but my Cuban Papa went on to say, you know, I don't know that it's really done good things for older people and for people after they get, after they get out of school. And he pointed, we were right, uh, right near the steps of the university is where I stayed when I was in Havana. So it's a pretty bustling area. There's a lot happening, a lot of uh, students walking around and a lot of action. Um, so he kind of would motion to the university, you know, we have this university, but where do they go from there? 
And that's the sense I got from talking to a lot of adults and a lot of older people on the island was, this is a great place for children. This uh, revolution has done a lot for children. But what about the adults? And now I look, I, I, I think about that now as I listen to the testimony about the January 6th insurrection. And then, and we have tried to, I wouldn't say we've tried to, but it was just sort of natural before the pandemic, before the tornadoes, before so much of the world-changing events of the last couple of years, we didn't talk about current events too much on this show. We would talk about drinks. We had enough content. We had, uh, we were trying to give people a little bit of an escape, but now with the proliferation of mass shootings, and you're talking to someone who went to Columbine High School, graduated a year before the shooting at Columbine, in which I knew people who died in that tragedy. And then also, I guess my other experience with gun violence that hit home, I was just lucky that myself and my daughter and my wife, my son was not born yet, but at the time we were not home, but we had our house sprayed with bullets from a drug deal gone wrong at a previous house we lived in. And I still own the guitar that got shot up. It's got a bullet hole in it. If I was sitting at the piano that day, that bullet would have went right through my head. And so while we have this proliferation of mass shootings here, I look out just like this kid did. I look out my window and if I'm looking to my left, I'm looking south right back down at Cuba. And I think about a place where people were proud of what their country had done for their children. And I look now at a society that's not there for their children, that doesn't seem to want to do anything to change the gun laws of this country, to change how easy it is for an 18-year-old to get an assault rifle. And you've seen other countries enact gun legislation immediately after these things go down. We continue to let it happen. And the reason I mentioned the, the insurrection and the testimony that's going on there, it's just kind of an embarrassment because it's like, if these are the guys who are coming to overthrow the government, led by a guy that if you had, when I was in Cuba in 2010, if, and people were excited about Barack Obama, they were very excited about him down there. Everybody was like, oh, hey, Obama, Obama's going to change things. They all had the assumption Obama was going to open the floodgates for the Americans to start going down there. They did a few things. They let tourists come down there, but it, it, he didn't do enough. And if you had told me that Donald Trump's going to be president after Obama, <laughs> it would have it would have been laughable. So when I, th I as we been circling the Hotel Nacional cocktail. It brought me back to my time that I spent at the hotel. There's a little Churchill bar downstairs. There's some bars outside. There's music outside. There's a statue of Kumpai Segundo, one of the most famous musicians in Havana who wrote the Chan Chan song and was a part of the Buena Vista Social Club. So I'm sitting there smoking cigars, looking at the statue of Kumpai Segundo, drinking these beautiful sugarcane juice cocktails and looking back at America across the ocean with this kid and maybe feeling some sort of pride that 
this kid really felt like uh, America was the answer for him. And now I look back at that time and look how far we've come away from thinking about our children and wanting to have a society that was good for children. Because before the revolution in Cuba, there was illiteracy. There were kids getting sick constantly from walking around barefoot, not having any clothes, not having in a lot of the rural areas of Cuba, no one could read. Disease was rampant and the um, agriculture was not supplying the society with food. And the Hotel Nacional uh, factors into all that because it is where the revolution essentially ended or began because it's where Fidel and his crew riding into Havana on tanks to take over the capital city. It's where they stopped. They went to the Hotel Nacional. They took over the hotel. They started the revolution. It was where their headquarters were to, to kickstart the country. And they took over a hotel that was so steeped in mob lore that there's an, a, a scene from Godfather 2 that references one of the biggest meetings of mob bosses that had ever happened that happened at the Hotel Nacional. And this was pre-revolution. And they had a, they, there was a casino at the Hotel Nacional. There were, there were shows. It's where all the singers wanted to stay. It was essentially an alternate Las Vegas, a Caribbean Las Vegas for Americans before the revolution came in. So the hotel itself, tons of history to it. It's a huge inflection point for U.S. and Cuba relations, which are not good these days. Not much happening there. Now, it would be right, it would only be right for me to go back and uh, give you some info on who came up with this drink. So, one of the stories is it was created by former Waldorf Astoria bar manager Will P. Taylor. Another story out there was that it was Eddie Welk who worked at the Casino Nacional. Welk's recipe is in the book Potions of the Caribbean, Beach Bum Berries, uh, second masterpiece of a book. 500 years of tropical drinks and the people behind them. The recipe in that book is uh, one ounce of white Cuban rum, quarter ounce apricot brandy, one ounce fresh pineapple juice, quarter ounce fresh lime juice. So it's sort of a mini version. We'll call that a shot version of the Hotel Nacional. And then the recipe from the book Gentleman's Companion back in 1939 that really helped introduce this book or this cocktail into... Uh, Cocktail lore. The recipe in that one is three to four pineapple chunks, three quarter ounce fresh lime juice, half ounce demerara syrup, half ounce apricot liqueur, one and a half ounce aged rum. So you muddle the pineapple chunks, you add the ingredients, you shake all that up. That'd be great. If you have a good ripe pineapple, I would suggest you check that out. That's a, that's a good version of that, the original version. For this one, with all the fruit going on, I'd take it up to two ounces. Of rum. So that's some different uh, history, some different recipes. It's a fascinating drink, a fascinating hotel. I'm surprised at how far we've come from, how far we've moved away from looking at society from the perspective of helping children, from the perspective of education and fostering some sort of society that is beneficial to children. If that's the one thing that I took away from how Locals in Cuba who grew up through it, that's what I took away. They were proud of that fact. Can we look around now and say the same thing? 
definitely not. So I'll drink to that or that makes me want to have a drink. So sorry we went a little heavy today. Heavy times. We'll be back continuing the summer of shots as well as some other content. We're going to be talking Tricol coming up all the way from Patagonia, the master distiller of Tricol, the world's first and only Patagonian spirit, Sebastian Gomez. He's going to be in Nashville. He'll be at Audrey Tuesday, June 14th at 2 p.m. doing a masterclass. You can text RSVP to that 615-925-0229. And um, he'll be coming on Liquid Gold the following day. So we will have an episode all about Tricol, as well as more Summer of Shots content. And we'll see you next time. Take care of yourself out there. Be safe. We love you. We'll see you next time right here on Liquid Gold.